0: Chapter Fourteen Part C of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One The Venetian Years by Giacomo Casanova. The moon was shining, and I saw a church with a house adjoining a long barn open on both sides, a plain of about 150 yards confined by hills, and nothing more. I found some straw in the barn, and laying down myself, I slept until daybreak in spite of the cold. It was the first of December, and although the climate is very mild in Corfu, I felt benumbed when I awoke, as I had no cloak over my thin uniform. The bells began to toll, and I proceeded towards the church. The long-bearded papa, surprised at my sudden apparition inquires whether i am romeo a greek i tell him that i am Fragico, italian but he turns his back upon me and goes into the house the door of which he shuts without condescending to listen to me i then turned towards the sea and saw a boat leaving a tartan lying at anchor within one hundred yards of the island the boat had four oars and landed her passengers I came up to them and met a good-looking Greek, a woman and a young boy, ten or twelve years old. Addressing myself to the Greek, I asked him whether he has had a pleasant passage, and where he comes from. He answers in Italian that he had sailed from Cephalonia with his wife and his son, and that he is bound for Venice. He had landed to hear Mass at the church of Our Lady of Casopo in order to ascertain whether his father-in-law was still alive, and whether he would pay the amount he had promised him for the dowry of his wife. But how can you find that out? The Papa del Dimopolo will tell me. He will communicate faithfully with the oracle of the Holy Virgin. I say nothing and follow him into the church. He speaks to the priest and gives him some money. The Papa says the Mass and enters the Sanctum Sanctorum, comes out again in a quarter of an hour, ascends the step of the altar and turns towards his audience and... After meditating for a minute and stroking his long beard, he delivers his oracle in a dozen words. The Greek of Cephalonia, who certainly cannot boast of being as wise as Ulysses, appears very well pleased, and gives more money to the impostor. We leave the church, and I ask him whether he feels satisfied with the oracle. Oh, quite satisfied. I know now that my father-in-law is alive, and that he will pay me the dowry, if I consent to leave my child with him. I am aware that it is his fancy, and I will give him the boy. Does the papa know you? No, he is not even acquainted with my name. Have you taken any fine goods on board your tartan? Yes, come and breakfast with me. You can see all that I have. Very willingly. Delighted at hearing that oracles were not yet defunct, and satisfied that they will endure as long as there are in this world simple-minded men and deceitful, cunning priests... I followed the good man, who took me to his tartan and treated me to an excellent breakfast. His cargo consisted of cotton, linen, currants, oil, and excellent wines. He also had a stock of nightcaps, stockings, cloaks in the eastern fashion, umbrellas, and sea-biscuits, of which I was very fond. In those days I had thirty teeth, and it would have been very difficult to find a finer set. Alas, I have but two left now. The other twenty-eight are gone, with the other tools quite as precious. But dum vita super est bene est. I bought a small stock of everything he had, except cotton, for which I had no use, and without discussing his price I paid him the thirty-five or forty sequins he demanded, and seeing my generosity he made me a present of six beautiful botargos. I happened during our conversation to praise the wine of Zante, which he called generides, and told me that if I would accompany him to Venice, he would give me a bottle of that wine every day, including the quarantine. Always superstitious, I was on the point of accepting, and that for the most foolish reason, namely, that there would be no premeditation in that strange resolution, and that it might be the impulse of fate. Such was my nature in those days. Alas, it is very different now. They say that it is because wisdom comes with old age but I cannot reconcile myself to cherish the effect of a most unpleasant cause. Just as I was going to accept his offer, he proposes to sell me a very fine gun for ten sequins, saying that in Corfu anybody would be glad of it for twelve. The word Corfu upsets all my ideas on the spot. I fancy I hear the voice of my genius telling me to go back to that city. I purchase the gun for ten sequins, and my honest cephalonian, admiring my fair-dealing, gives me, over and above our bargain, a beautiful Turkish pouch, well filled with powder and shot. Carrying my gun, with a good warm cloak over my uniform, and with a large bag containing all my purchases, I take leave of the worthy Greek, and am landed on the shore, determined on obtaining a lodging from the cheating papa, by fair means or foul. The good wine of my friend the Cephalonian had excited me just enough to make me carry my determination into immediate execution. I had in my pockets four or five hundred copper gazette, which were very heavy, but which I had procured from the Greek, foreseeing that I might want them during my stay on the island. I store my bag away in the barn, and I proceed gun in hand towards the house of the priest. The church was closed. I must give my readers some idea of the state I was in at that moment. I was quite hopeless. The three or four hundred sequins I had with me did not prevent me from thinking that I was not in very great security on the island. I could not remain long, I would soon be found out, and being guilty of desertion, I would be treated accordingly. I did not know what to do, and that is always an unpleasant predicament. It would be absurd for me to return to Corfu of my own accord. My flight would then be useless. I should be thought a fool, for my return would be a proof of cowardice or stupidity. Yet I did not feel the courage to desert altogether." The chief reason of my decision was not that I had a thousand sequins in the hands of the faro banker, or my well-stocked wardrobe, or the fear of not getting a living somewhere else, but the unpleasant recollection that I should leave behind me a woman whom I loved to adoration, and for whom I had not yet obtained any favor, not even of kissing her hand. In such distress of mind I could not do anything else but abandon myself to chance. Whatever the reason might be, and the most essential thing for the present was to secure a lodging and my daily food. I knock at the door of the priest's dwelling. He looks out of a window and shuts it without listening to me. I knock again. I swear. I call out loudly, all in vain. Giving way to my rage, I took aim at the poor sheep grazing with several others at a short distance and kill it. The herdsman begins to scream. The papa shows himself at the window, calling out, "'Thieves! Murder!' and orders the alarm bell to be rung. Three bells are immediately set in motion. I foresee a general gathering. What is going to happen? I do not know. But will happen what will? I load my gun and wait the coming events. In less than eight or ten minutes, I see a crowd of peasants coming down the hills, armed with guns, pitchforks, or cudgels. I withdraw inside the barn, but without the slightest fear, for I cannot suppose that, seeing me alone, these men will murder me without listening to me. The first ten or twelve peasants come forward, gun in hand and ready to fire. I stop them by throwing down my gazette, which they lose no time in picking up from the ground, and I keep on throwing money down as the men came forward, until I had no more left. The clowns were looking at each other in great astonishment, not knowing what to make out of a well-dressed young man, looking very peaceful and throwing his money to them with such generosity. I could not speak to them until the deafening noise of the bells should cease. I quietly sit down on my large bag and keep still, but as soon as I can be heard, I begin to address the men. The priest, however, assisted by his beetle and his herdsmen, interrupts me, and all the more easily that I was speaking Italian. My three enemies, who talked all at once, were trying to excite the crowd against me. One of the peasants, an elderly and reasonable-looking man, comes up to me and asks an Italian why I have killed the sheep. To eat it, my good fellow, but not before I have paid for it his holiness the papa might choose to charge one sequin for it here is one sequin the priest takes the money and goes away the war is over the peasant tells me that he had served on the campaign of 1716 and that he was at the defense of corfu i compliment him and ask him to find me a lodging and a man able to prepare my meals he answers that he will procure me a whole house that he will be the cook himself but i must go up the hill no matter He calls two stout fellows, one takes my bag, the other shoulders my sheep, and "Forward!" As we are walking along I tell him, "My good man, I would like to have in my service twenty four fellows like these under military discipline; I would give each man twenty gazette a day, and I would have forty as my lieutenant." "I will," says the old soldier, "raise for you this very day a bodyguard of which you will be proud. We reach a very convenient house, containing on the ground floor three rooms and a stable, which I immediately turned into a guard room. My lieutenant went to get what I wanted, and particularly a needlewoman to make me some shirts. In the course of the day I had furniture, bedding, kitchen utensils, a good dinner, twenty-four well-equipped soldiers, a superannuated seamstress, and several young girls to make my shirts. After supper I found my position highly pleasant, being surrounded with some thirty persons, who looked upon me as their sovereign, although they could not make out what had brought me to their island. The only thing which struck me as disagreeable was that the young girls could not speak Italian, and I did not know Greek enough to enable me to make love to them. The next morning my lieutenant had the guard relieved, and I could not help bustling into a merry laugh. They were like a flock of sheep, all fine men, well made and strong, but without uniform, and without discipline, the finest band is all but a herd. However, they quickly learned how to present arms, and to obey the orders of their officer. I ordered three sentinels to be placed, one before the guardroom, one at my door, and a third where he could have a good view of the sea. This sentinel was to give me warning of the approach of any armed boat or vessel. For the first two or three days I considered all this as mere amusement, But thinking that I might really want the men to repel force by force, I had some idea of making my army take an oath of allegiance. I did not do so, however, although my lieutenant assured me that I had only to express my wishes, for my generosity had captured the love of all the islanders. My seamstress, who had procured some young needlewomen to sew my shirts, had expected that I would fall in love with one, and not with all. But my amorous zeal overstepped her hopes, and all the pretty ones had their turn, and they were all well satisfied with me. The seamstress was rewarded for her good offices. I was leading a delightful life, for my table was supplied with excellent dishes, juicy mutton and snipe so delicious that I have never tasted their like except in St. Petersburg. I drank Scopolo wine, or the best muscatel of the archipelago. My lieutenant was my only table companion. I never took a walk without him and two of my bodyguard, in order to defend myself against the attacks of a few young men who had a spite against me because they fancied, not without some reason, that my needlewomen, their mistress, had left them on my account. I often thought, while I was rambling about the island, that without money I should have been unhappy, and that I was indebted to my gold for all the happiness that I was enjoying, but it was right to suppose, at the same time, if I had not left my purse pretty heavy... I would not have been likely to leave Corfu. I had thus been playing the petty king with success for a week or ten days, when, towards ten o'clock at night, I heard the sentinel's challenge. My lieutenant went out and returned announcing that an honest-looking man who spoke Italian wished to see me on important business. I brought him in, and in the presence of my lieutenant, he told me in Italian, Next Sunday, the Papa, del Dimopolo, will fulminate against you, the Cata Romanacchia, if you do not prevent him, a slow fever will send you into the next world in six weeks. I have never heard of such a drug. It is not a drug. It is a curse pronounced by a priest with a host in his hands, and is sure to be fulfilled. What reason can that priest have to murder me? You disturb the peace and discipline of his parish. You have seduced several young girls, and now their lovers refuse to marry them. I made him drink, and thanking him heartily, wished him good night. His warning struck me as deserving my attention, for, if I had no fear of the cacha romanachia, in which I had not the slightest faith, I feared certain poisons by which they might be far more efficient. I passed a very quiet night, but at daybreak I got up, and without saying anything to my lieutenant, I went straight to the church, where I found the priest, and addressed him in the following words, uttered in a tone, likely to enforce conviction. On the first symptom of fever, I will shoot you like a dog. Throw over me a curse which will kill me instantly, or make your will. Farewell. Having thus warned him, I returned to my royal palace. Early on the following Monday, the papa called on me. I had a slight headache. He inquired after my health, and when I told him that my head felt rather heavy, he made me laugh by the air of anxiety with which he assured me that it could be caused by nothing else than the heavy atmosphere of the island of Kasopo. Three days after his visit, the advanced sentinel gave the war cry. The lieutenant went out to reconnoitre, and after a short absence he gave me notice that the long boat of an armed vessel had just landed an officer. Danger was at hand. I go out myself. I call my men to arms, and, advancing a few steps, I see an officer, accompanied by a guide, who was walking towards my dwelling. As he was alone, I had nothing to fear. I returned to my room, giving orders to my lieutenant to receive him with all military honors, and to introduce him. Then, girding my sword, I waited for my visitor. In a few minutes, Adjutant Minolto, the same who had brought me the order to put myself under arrest, makes his appearance. "'You are alone,' I say to him, and therefore you come as a friend. Let us embrace.' "'I must come as a friend, for, as an enemy, I should not have enough men.' but what I see seems a dream. Take a seat and dine with me. I will treat you splendidly. Most willingly, and after dinner we will leave the island together. You may go alone if you like, but I will not leave this place until I have the certainty, not only that I should not be sent to the Bastarda, but also that I shall have every satisfaction from the knave whom the general ought to send to the galleys. Be reasonable, and come with me of your own accord. My orders are to take you by force." But as I have not enough men to do so, I shall make my report, and the general will, of course, send a force sufficient to arrest you. Never. I will not be taken alive. You must be mad. Believe me, you are in the wrong. You have disobeyed the order I brought you to go to the Bestarda, and in that you acted wrongly. And in that alone, for in every other respect you were perfectly right, the general himself says so. That I ought to have put myself under arrest? Certainly. Obedience is necessary in our profession. Would you have obeyed if you had been in my place? I cannot and will not tell you what I would have done, but I know that if I had disobeyed orders I should be guilty of a crime. But if I surrendered now, I should be treated like a criminal, and much more severely than if I had obeyed that unjust order. I think not. Come with me, and you will know everything. What? What? Go, without knowing what fate may be in store for me? Do not expect it. Let us have dinner. If I am guilty of such a dreadful crime that violence must be used against me, I will surrender only to irresistible force. I cannot be worse off, but there may be blood spilled. You are mistaken. Such conduct would only make you more guilty. But I say, like you, let us have dinner. A good meal will very likely render you more disposed to listen to reason. Our dinner was nearly over, when we heard some noise outside. The lieutenant came in, and informed me that the peasants were gathering in the neighborhood of my house to defend me, because a rumor had spread through the island that the felucca had been sent with orders to arrest me and take me to Corfu. I told him to undeceive the good fellows, and to send them away, but to give them first a barrel of wine. The peasants went away satisfied but to show their devotion at me, they all fire their guns. It is all very amusing, said the adjutant, but it will turn out very serious if you let me go away alone, for my duty compels me to give an exact account of all I have witnessed. I will follow you if you give me your word of honor to land me free in Corfu. I have orders to deliver you to the person of Monsieur Foscari on board the Bastarda. Well, you should not execute your orders this time, if you do not obey the commands of the general, his honor will compel him to use violence against you, and of course he can do it. But tell me, what would you do if the general should leave you in this island for the sake of the joke? There is no fear of that, however, and after the report which I must give, the general will certainly make up his mind to stop the affair without shedding blood. Without a fight, it will be difficult to arrest me, for with five hundred peasants in such a place as this, I would not be afraid of three thousand men." One man will prove enough. You will be treated as a leader of rebels. All these peasants may be devoted to you, but they cannot protect you against one man who will shoot you for the sake of earning a few pieces of gold. I can tell you more than that. Amongst all those men who surround you, there is not one who would not murder you for twenty sequins. Believe me. Go with me. Come to enjoy the triumph which is awaiting for you in Corfu. You will be courted and applauded. You will narrate yourself all your mad frolics. People will laugh, and at the same time will admire you for having listened to reason the moment I came here. Everybody feels esteem for you, and Monsieur D. R. thinks a great deal of you. He praises very highly the command you have shown over your passion in refraining from thrusting your sword through that insolent fool, in order not to forget the respect you owe to his house. The general himself must esteem you, for he cannot forget what you told him of that knave. What has become of him? Four days ago, Major Sardina's frigate arrived with dispatches, in which the general must have found all the proof of the imposture, for he caused the fake duke or prince to disappear very suddenly. Nobody knows where he has been sent to, and nobody ventures to mention the fellow before the general, for he has made the most egregious blunder respecting him. But was the man received in society after the thrashing I gave him? God forbid! Do you not recollect that he wore a sword? From that moment no one would receive him, his arm was broken, and his jaw shattered to pieces. But in spite of the state he was in, in spite of what he must have suffered, His Excellency had him removed a week after you treated him so severely. But your flight is what everyone has been wondering over. It was thought for three days that Monsieur D. R. had concealed you in his house, and he was openly blamed for doing so he had to declare loudly at the general's table that he was in the most complete ignorance of your whereabouts. His Excellency even expressed his anxiety about your escape, and it was only yesterday that your place of refuge was made known by a letter addressed by the priest of this island to the protopapa, Bulgari, in which he complained that an Italian officer had invaded the island of Cassopo a week before, and had committed unheard-of violence. He accused you of seducing all the girls, and of threatening to shoot him if he dares to pronounce Cataromanachia against you. This letter, which was read publicly in the evening reception, made the general laugh, but he ordered me to arrest you all the same. Madame Sagredo is the cause of all of it. True, but she is well punished for it. You ought to call upon her with me to-morrow. Tomorrow? Tomorrow? Are you then certain I shall not be placed under arrest? Yes, for I know that the general is a man of honor. I am of the same opinion. Let us go on board your felucca. We will embark together after midnight. Well, why not now? Because I will not run the risk of spending the night on board Monsieur Foscari's Bastarda. I want to reach Corfu by daylight, so as to make your victory more brilliant. But what shall we do for the next eight hours? We will pay a visit to some beauties of a species unknown in Corfu, and have a good supper. I ordered my lieutenant to send plenty to eat and to drink to the men on board the felucca, to prepare a splendid supper, and to spare nothing, as I should leave the island at midnight. I made him a present of all my provisions, except such as I wanted to take with me. These I sent on board. My janizaries, to whom I gave a week's pay, insisted upon escorting me, fully equipped, as far as the boat, which made the adjutant laugh all the way. We reached Corfu by eight in the morning, and we went alongside the Bastarda. The adjutant consigned me to Monsieur Foscari, assuring me that he would immediately give notice to my arrival to Monsieur D.R., send my luggage to his house, and report the success of his expedition to the general. Monsieur Foscari, commander of the Bastarda, treated me very badly. If he had been blessed with any delicacy of feeling he would not have been such a hurry to put me in irons. He might have talked to me, and have thus delayed for a quarter of an hour that operation, which greatly vexed me. But, without uttering a single word, he sent me to the Capo di Scalo, which made me sit down, and told me to put my foot forward to receive the irons, which, however, did not dishonor anyone in that country, not even the galley slaves, for they are better treated than soldiers. My right leg was already in irons, and the left one was in the hands of the man, for the completion of that unpleasant ceremony, when the adjutant of His Excellency came to tell the executioner to set me at liberty and to return me my sword. I wanted to present my compliments to the noble Monsieur Foscari, but the adjutant, rather ashamed, assured me that His Excellency did not expect me to do so. The first thing I did was to pay my respects to the general, without saying one word to him, but he told me, With a very serious countenance, to be more prudent for the future, and to learn that a soldier's first duty was to obey, and above all to be modest and discreet. I understood perfectly the meaning of the last two words, and acted accordingly. When I made my appearance at Monsieur D. R.'s., I could see pleasure on everybody's face. Those moments have always been so dear to me that I have never forgotten them. They have afforded me consolation in the times of adversity. If you would relish pleasure, You must endure pain, and delights are in proportion to the privations which we have suffered. Monsieur D. R. was so glad to see me that he came up to me and warmly embraced me. He presented me with a beautiful ring which he took from his own finger, and told me that I had acted quite rightly, in not letting anyone, and particularly himself, know where I had taken refuge. But you can't think, he added frankly, how interested Madame F. was in your fate she would be really delighted if you would call on her immediately. How delightful to receive such advice from his own lips! But the word immediately annoyed me, because, having passed the night on board the felucca, I was afraid that the disorder of my toilet might injure me in her eyes. Yet I could neither refuse Monsieur D.R., nor tell him the reasons of my refusal, and I bethought myself that I would make a merit of it in the eyes of Madame F., I, therefore, went at once to her house. The goddess was not yet visible, but her attendant told me to come in, assuring me that her mistress's bell would soon be heard, and that she would be very sorry if I did not wait to see her. I spent half an hour with that young and indiscreet person, who was a very charming girl, and learned from her many things which caused me great pleasure, and particularly all that had been said respecting my escape. I found that, throughout the affair, my conduct had met with general approbation. As soon as Madame F. had seen her maid, she desired me to be shown in. The curtains were drawn aside, and I thought I saw Aurora, surrounded with roses, and the pearls of mourning. I told her that if it had not been for the order I had received from Monsieur D. R., I would not have presumed to present myself before her in my travelling costume. And in the most friendly tone, she answered that, Monsieur D. R., Knowing all the interest she felt in me had been quite right to tell me to come, and she assured me that Monsieur D. R. had the greatest esteem for me. I do not know, madam, how I have deserved such great happiness, for all I have dared to aim was at toleration. We all admired the control you kept over your feelings when you refrained from killing that insolent madman on the spot. He would have been thrown out the window if he had not beat a hurried retreat. "'I should certainly have killed him, madam, if you had not been present. "'A very pretty compliment, but I can hardly believe that you thought of me in such a moment.' "'I did not answer, but cast my eyes down, and gave a deep sigh. "'She observed my new ring, and, in order to change the subject of conversation, "'she praised Monsieur D. R. very highly, as soon as I had told her that how he had offered it to me. "'She desired me to give her an account of my life on the island,' and I did so, but I allowed my pretty needlewoman to remain under a veil, for I had already learnt that in this world the truth must often remain untold. All my adventures amused her very much, and she greatly admired my conduct. Would you have the courage, she said, to repeat all you have just told me, and exactly in the same terms before the Providitori Generale? Most certainly, madam, provided that he asked me himself. Well then, prepare... "'to redeem your promise. "'I want our excellent general to love you "'and to become your warmest protector, "'so as to shield you against every injustice "'and to promote your advancement. "'Leave it all to me.' "'Her reception fairly overwhelmed me with happiness, "'and on leaving her house, "'I went to Major Moroli "'to find out the state of my finances. "'I was glad to hear that after my escape "'he had no longer considered me a partner in the Faroe Bank. "'I took four hundred sequins from the cashier.' and, reserving the right to become again a partner, should circumstances prove at any time favorable. In the evening, I made a careful toilet, and called for the adjutant Minoloto, in order to pay with him a visit to Madame Sagredo, the general's favorite. With the exception of Madame F., she was the greatest beauty of Corfu. My visit surprised her, because, as she had been the cause of all that had happened, she was very far from expecting it she imagined that I had spite against her. I undeceived her, speaking to her very candidly, and she treated me most kindly, inviting me to come now and then to spend an evening at her house. But I neither accepted nor refused her amiable invitation, knowing that Madame F. disliked her, and how could I be a frequent guest at her house with such a knowledge? Besides, Madame Segredo was very fond of gambling, and, to please her, it was necessary either to lose, or to make her win. But to accept such conditions, one must be in love with the lady, or to wish her conquest. I had not the slightest idea of either. The adjutant, Minoloto, never played, but he had captivated the lady's good graces by his services in the character of Mercury. When I returned to the palace, I found Madame F. alone, Monsieur D. R. being engaged with his correspondents. She asked me to sit near her, and to tell her of my adventures in Constantinople. I did so, and I had no occasion to repent it. My meeting with Yusef's wife pleased her extremely. But the bathing scene by moonlight made her blush with excitement. I veiled as much as I could the too brilliant colors of my picture. But, if she did not find me clear, she would oblige me to be more explicit. And if I made myself better understood by giving to my recital a touch of voluptuousness which I had borrowed from her looks rather than for my own recollection, she would scold me, and tell me that I might have disguised a little more. I felt that the way she was talking would give her a liking for me, and I was satisfied that the man who can give birth to amorous desires is easily called upon to gratify them. It was the reward I was ardently longing for, and I dared to hope it would be mine, although I could see it only looming in the distance. It happened on that day, Monsieur D. R. Had invited a large company to supper. I had, as a matter of course, to engross all conversation, and to give the fullest particulars of all that had taken place from the moment I received the order to place myself under arrest up to the time of my release from the Bastarda. Monsieur Foscari was seated next to me, and the last part of my narrative was not, I suppose, particularly agreeable to him. The account I gave of my adventures pleased everybody, and it was decided that the provatore generale must have the pleasure of hearing my tale from my own lips. I mentioned that Hay was very plentiful in Kasopo, and as that article was very scarce in Corfu, Monsieur D. R. told me that I ought to seize the opportunity of making myself agreeable to the general by informing him of that circumstance without delay. I followed his advice the very next day, and was very well received, for His Excellency immediately ordered a squad of men to go to the island and to bring large quantities of hay to Corfu. A few days later, the adjutant Minotto came to me in the coffee-house, and told me that the general wished to see me. This time, I promptly obeyed his commands. End of chapter fourteen, part c.